Hello, everyone. Uh, it's once again my pleasure to, to bring uh, a very important guest uh, to this uh, discussion this evening, uh, because it's really always my desire to bring to this space uh, someone who's done such tremendous work with their career, because it is my hope that in doing so, we can all be better people uh, ready to contribute uh, whatever we can uh, to making sure that we continue to live in a place uh, that we can be proud of, in a world that we can be proud of. And uh, it is always my desire to ensure that the people that I bring to this space are the people who uh, really believe what I believe, that we all have a responsibility to contribute our best, not just uh, the minimum, but our best to ensuring that we are able to live a world that is better than the one that we met. I understand that that's a very big challenge, uh, but doing that uh, the way, the best way that we can, you know, is really something that I always crave. And for me, the way to do that is to have discussions with people who know a lot, <laughs> you know, and not just, and I bring them not just because of what they know, but because of what they do. And uh, today, my guest is uh, Warren Graham, who is the Assistant Dean of Practical Education and is also Clinical Associate Professor uh, in the Stony Brook University School of Social Work. Uh, he is now the president-elect of the National Association of Social Workers, uh, New York State Chapter, as board of directors, and uh, will be he's the president-elect, and it's going to be the full president <laughs> very soon. Uh, so when I say that um, Warren and I can be talking all night, that is because there is so much to talk about. And in addition to overseeing practical education at Stony Brook University, uh, he co-chairs the Curriculum Committee and Committee on Professionalism and teaches in both the undergraduate and graduate programs in the university. He has been active as an educator, a forensic evaluator and clinician for more than 20 years as a licensed social worker and also as a credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor. Uh, as an advocate for social justice and human rights, uh, Warren Graham has authored publications that speak to the need for inclusive human rights in the pursuit of social justice, retributive and restorative justice, human rights defenders. And ex he has done a lot of work that examines uh, race, law enforcement culture, and social work practice power, privilege, and oppression in microaggressive environments. And it's always my pleasure to speak with you, uh, Warren. And uh, it's, sometimes I really get confused. I don't know if I will describe you as my friend, my colleague, or my brother. Me. <laughs> all, 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 all three. <laughs> all three. And uh, you know, too, that I always, um, I like to hang out with people who are very brilliant. And uh, you are one of those, and um, I thank you. And uh, Warren is also a PhD uh, candidate at Adelphi University. And uh, he, he brightens every space that he walks into. And uh, I'm very happy to call you my friend, my brother, and my colleague. 
And today I, I will start by asking you uh, how you decided to become a social worker and why. Um, so first of all, thank you for that wonderful uh, introduction. Um, I'm, I'm always humbled, you know, whenever whenever we speak. Um, you know, you talk about responsibility, you know, to con contribute. And, you know, I, I do believe, and I know you believe it as well, uh, that we all do have a responsibility and we should be held accountable to the world around us. So, you know, we have to do what we can when we can in order to make a difference. Um, so I don't... You know, I, I came to social work by accident. You know, I, I always wanted to be a helper. That was never a question. Um, I always wanted to be a clinician. That was never a question either. Um, but I didn't know that social work was a profession. I didn't know that social work was an option. I didn't know social work was a vehicle for, for change until my last semester of undergrad. Um, I was a psychology major at Old Westbury, and I had it in my mind I was going to be an FBI profiler, you know, because I've always wanted to be a student of behavior. Um, I always wanted to uh, really investigate, you know, why do people do the things that they do? Um, you know, I've been active researching my family tree for over 20, 25 years. Um, and there were medical issues. There were things that are pervasive that I see, in, you know, generationally. Uh, and one of them is substance use. You know, so it was always a question, you know, how is it that substances uh, can impact individuals' lives, affect families, affect communities uh, in the way that they do? Uh, what is it about the reliance on this thing, you know, that, that, um, you know, affects their behavior, you know, to the degree that they can neglect family, not show up and things like that. So uh, that that was my plan, you know, until my advisor asked me what I wanted to do with my life and what my plan was and asked me one question, which really proved to be pivotal. You know, my advisor said, do you think that people's behavior can be influenced by the environment? And I thought for a moment, I said, absolutely. You know, I know many uh, uh, wonderful people who, through no fault of their own, but because of the environment they were in, um, you know, went left instead of went right. So my advisor said, you don't want to be a psychologist. You know, you want to be a social worker. And I said, what's that? Because my Long Island um, middle class privilege um, allowed me not to know what a, what a social worker was, right? So I didn't know what what that was. I didn't know uh, what the what the uh, career outlook was for a for social worker or social workers. Uh, so it was my advisor that put me on this path of kind of exploration and self-discovery. And uh, once I researched it, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to be able to be a part of change um, at, at, at a micro level, work with communities at the meso level, and work with large-scale overarching policy issues at the macro level. So that's how I applied to Fordham Universities for their Graduate School of Social Work. Um, and simultaneously, I was working a job overseeing Nassau County's um, adult drug treatment program. 
So at the same time I was actually in school, I was actually applying what I was learning in the classroom with, with the people in the systems I was working within. You know, you said one thing that I think we need to uh, focus on, well, multiple things. Uh, one is I uh, like to understand um, that journey uh, as it relates to substance use treatment, you know, substance use disorders uh, generally. Uh, but I actually, first of all, want to address what you talked about when you said, or what you meant when you said uh, your Long Island privilege made it possible for you not even to know what such a was. Uh, you know, because one, what's interesting about that is that, um, where is, that we're at a point in society now where there's a significant need, you know, for social workers across the country. Uh, perhaps because they call, you know we are knowing a lot more, but also because of uh, what you describe as the privilege of not knowing. But I like if you would expand on that. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know, it, it's interesting uh, when we we think about social workers. When I see social workers now and how they're characterized or portrayed, you know, it's usually child welfare workers. It's usually someone in on SVU. You know you know, grabbing a baby out of some woman's arms, um, you know, but even that characterization was unfamiliar to me, you know, W.E. Du Bois, you know, talks about this idea of uh, dual consciousness or double consciousness, right? You know, like, what is it to be uh, a Black man in, in a country that doesn't respect Black people, you know, right? So, you know, I feel like in, in along the same vein, here I was part of a marginalized community, uh, but yet I didn't experience all the things that most marginalized communities experience. You know, uh, there was no poverty, uh, there was no homelessness, um, there was no CPS or ACS, you know, involvement, but things weren't easy. You know, so it, it's it's interesting that the, the challenges I did have, um, there were definitely points in my life I could have benefited from a social worker, just not the kinds of social worker usually connected to, attached to impoverished or marginalized communities, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. And you know, for me, I actually came here from a faraway country. And uh, it was also a country where um, there was a significant degree of privilege. So you just answered, you just solved a puzzle. Uh, that I have had as far as my own life. You know, how come I, you know, social work found me instead of me finding social work? Mm -hmm. Because I also didn't know what social work was, you know, <laughs> when I came here. I had no clue what social work was. And then uh, I think that not knowing and now not only knowing, but also practicing in the field uh, must give you some sense of uh, responsibility. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, um, I, I do feel, especially around that privilege piece, like for, for whom much is given, much is required. You know, I do feel it's my responsibility, you know, to give back. And now that I know the depth and breadth of social work, now when I look at my life, when I look at my relationships, when I look at my friends and the, my families, I'm like, huh, I'm seeing all the different ways in which social work can be helpful in, in all of these spaces. Um, and knowing what I know, I'm in positions to connect people 
to services, connect people to to the things that they need just to experience life better. So it's it's definitely a blessing. Do you find that uh, some of your colleagues, my colleagues in academia, uh, don't really remember that they're social workers? First. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is that a good question? <laughs> well, I, I don't I don't know if some of our colleagues um, even identify as being social workers, right? So in my so my dissertation is around the integration of social justice in anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion in social work education with an emphasis on field education. Um, and one of the things that I'm finding is that not all of the students who are sitting in these seats want to be social workers. Social work is just the most expedient path to a whole other career that they would like, a, uh, a, a method of service delivery in social work, but they don't want to necessarily be identified with social work and, you know, identified as a social worker. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of stigma attached to, to social workers. Um, you know, there may not be as much pride in being a social worker um, in some of the other career uh, aspirational choices that some of our colleagues and, and students sitting in the seats now kind of are, are looking looking for. Um, it isn't sexy to say you're a social worker, but, you know, it may be for someone to say, I'm a psychotherapist. And, you know, there's nothing against psychotherapy, right? There, There's a need for clinicians who can operate at that level. But to be a social worker is, is a very, uh, very specific career choice um, that is both as broad as you want it to be, um, but can be as specific as you need it to be as well. Um, so being taught how to work with individuals, families, communities, organizations, you know, from the, you know, smallest level up to the largest level, um, understanding human behavior and integration, integrating policy and, and research and practice all at the same time, um, I feel like that's a, that's a special skill set um, and a skill set that individuals should be proud of. So when I see that disconnect, um, you know, between myself and what I believe and some of my colleagues, it's quite often because, you know, we don't believe the same things and we didn't go into this for the same reasons. You know, you started by talking about, um, you know, you, you can tell that everything you're saying is music to my ears, <laughs> you know, and, uh, right? you know, and you started by talking about wondering how um, our substances, how and why substances of this, uh, you know, um, affect people the way that they do. And you also try to explore and your advisor also talked about uh, the role of the environment. And as we were talking about it, I was thinking about the whole really the fundamental uh, explanation for what psychosocial approach to what we do actually means. Uh, it really just means the, uh, the individual, the environment, and the interaction between the individual and the environment. And that can cause a whole lot of uh, issues and, and privilege and benefits and uh, uh, disadvantages and uh, when you relate that, uh, you know, I, you know, to what you also have practiced, uh, working with people with substance use disorders, 
I am wondering what the experience has felt like for you, because I'm imagining, because I, I know that in addition to being a professor at a prestigious university, uh, you are also still in clinical practice. And you also look at social work from a macro lens. Uh, so I am imagining that in your classroom, just as I do, you do not have barriers between a micro and a meso and a macro. And so you can think of a social worker as a clinician, also realizing because of you know what you and I think about life, that your client has not had food to eat. And so you might pick up the phone and cross that micro border and engage, you know, the macro even jumping through the, the meso. Uh, so I am thinking that because of all of these experiences and, you know, and uh, how you came into the profession, mm -hmm. you are a better professor and a better clinician. But along the way, there must have been some experiences that have really stuck with you. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how all of these intersectionalities really, you know, uh, play out in your work and in your whole worldview of social work as a profession and social work practice. Yeah, so there were definitely moments, you know, over the years that, that really stood out that allowed me to connect more pieces of the puzzle actually together. Um, you know, so one of the first I would... I would think is, you know, my experience in Nassau County um, Drug Treatment Court, you know, I had a client, I was working with a client who was doing really well progressing through the program um, and was at the point, it was a 12 to 18 month program um, with, you know, different phases and their rewards for going from one phase to another, you know, abstinence program, compliance, those are, you know, kind of things that would allow you to move from one phase to another. And as I'm talking about how wonderful the client is doing and they're about to get their children back and, you know, they're going to put all this behind them, the client said, put it behind me, you know, um, I'm going to a program, I'm showing up here to court, you know, every other week or once a month, but I'm going back to a community where I can knock on the wall of my apartment and in 20 minutes, someone will be at my front door with drugs. So that makes moving furniture, it makes play fighting with my kids, it makes everything look different. Because as I'm trying to live clean and sober, if I accidentally bump the wall, do I necessarily want to be triggered by someone knocking on my door? And, you know, and I re that really hit me hard. And that's the first time I really thought about the policy uh, limitations you know, in, in, my, in my program and in other programs. Um, how is it that we aren't taking people who are triggered by their communities out of the actual community, but yet expecting them to change their behavior, right? So that was one of the moments that really uh, hit, hit me hard. Um, I can think of another one that years later, we implemented a juvenile drug court program and, and this, this is also probably a good example of that intersectionality that you mentioned. And, you know, we did a lot of planning. You know, we had a grant from the Reclaiming Futures Initiative to all simultaneously start this juvenile drug court program. Um, 
um, using this evidence-based model. It was it was fancy. It was new. It was going to change the lives of adolescent substance users on probation in Nassau County. Um, and based on the number of juvenile delinquency and persons in need of supervision filings, we had a pretty good snapshot of exactly who it is we were going to be working with. Mm-hmm. And I think it looked like a 15-year-old Black male from some of the most marginalized communities in Nassau. A year later, fast forward, the populations we were getting were 16 or a 17-year-old white children from some affluent communities in Nassau County. And it was just happenstance that all of a sudden we looked, we're like, wait a minute, how did we wind up here? You know, because we had grant funds, you know, we were infusing grant funds in certain communities, but yet these are not the communities that clients are coming from. And I was having this conversation with an attorney for the child, who used to be called law guardians. And the law guardian said, I don't refer my, you know, my young black men to your program. And I said, well, why not? Because I'm thinking in my head, this is the exact population that this program was designed for. And the law guardian, who was also a woman of color, said, um, I'm not going to refer them to the program because one of the legal benefits is having their uh, cases sealed and expunged. And if all they're going to do is is catch a new case, then what's the point? So for me, the idea that a, a law guardian or attorney for the child whose responsibility is to, to be the legal advocate um doesn't necessarily be, maybe not believe in the work that they're doing or not avail all of their clients to the same opportunities uh, and legal benefits and the the benefit of of kind of accessing the resources available in this program was mind blowing and she was a woman of color talking to me a man of color um and the idea that privilege you know, that this was a benefit only afforded privileged clients from privileged community, communities was was mind-blowing. So for me, that's how kind of privilege and intersectionality started to kind of be introduced into my work. Unfortunately, it was too late in the, you know, to, to do anything about that, not only the, the mindset or perspective of that law guardian, um, but also the direction that the program was already going in. Um, you know, it's it's been interesting thinking about that intersect of um, of race and, and gender. You know, close to 87% of social work are white women. So I'm often the only Black man in most of my spaces. Um, and I've been on the receiving end of implicit bias and race-based microaggressions. Um, at the hands of social workers, you know? So I'm thinking, I learned about social justice and human rights and anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion before it was required in CSWE's educational policy and accreditation standards. So I would assume that some of my colleagues learned the same things. So why are they treating me negatively, you know, because of my positionality, because of my identity? And then I learned, you know, we, we as social workers, we are also representative of the communities that we come from. So our communities are socializing some of us to hold on to these beliefs 
no matter what it is we're being taught in the schools. So these, now this is a constant lesson that I'm constantly being shown. Um, and it's really challenging. It makes, it makes the work difficult at times. It does indeed, uh, because you have to think of all of these things. But uh, I would say to you that, and um, I don't even think this is arguable. You know, I, I said uh, many years ago that when you look at the defense mechanisms that we teach and that we use in our work, and you pick out of those mechanisms, for example, uh, displacement, that there, there is probably no bunch of people uh, that uh, will use a displacement as a defense mechanism than social workers. And, and I will say more specifically now that I know even more than when I first said that, uh, social workers of color, because we are supposed to deal with all of these issues. I see someone who looks like you who has been shafted by the system and sometimes you feel helpless and sometimes you deal with uh, some of the things that you've just talked about with colleagues and then go home as if nothing happened. Because you still want to be able to maintain a sweet face when you see your young children, <laughs> you know, right? And uh, when you see uh, your colleagues and when friends and family call you, you still want to be able to answer the phone and just go on as if life is just good so but since you brought that up about how what it's like to be a person of color uh, in some spaces in some professional spaces I want to ask you two questions in one um, the first of that bundle of questions is why did you decide you know you're a it seems like you're a practitioner at heart but I can't even say that because you have written and published so much <laughs> you know that I can't even say you're a practitioner at heart I think I should just say you're a, you're a scholar practitioner right and so when and why did you decide to go into academia and what has the journey been like for you as a black man in academia. So, <laughs> as with everything in my life. Should I withdraw the second question? No, no, no. You're going <laughs> <laughs> get me in trouble. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, no, so, as with everything in, in my career, you know, everything has been, you know, orchestrated by a higher power, right? You know, all of my steps have been ordered when I looked back you know, added. Um, so I didn't necessarily want to go into higher education. So, you know, 2011, there was uh, New York State layoffs. First time in 30 years that there were layoffs in the court system. So I lost my job um, in Nassau County to uh, someone else in the same role, but in another court building who had a year and a half more seniority. So at that point, I'm thinking, wow, what am I going to do? You know, after seven and a half years, I had, you know, I envisioned a whole different type of path and trajectory. Now that's upended. So the first position I worked with after that was working with the hungry and homeless, which which allowed me to to work with, you know, those individuals that, that are, are invisible to most people. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, and then I worked for an outpatient mental health um, agency that provided high needs uh, clinical services to children and, and adolescents. Um, and I was like, huh, okay. So I was doing more work in communities. Um, you know, there was some some clinical work and I'm like, okay. So I felt like getting back to kind of my roots instead of a, a supervisor and overseeing case management. Now I'm actually doing the thing. Um, uh, but that was a grant funded program. So when when the grant was was ending at some point, you know, I was talking to my my mentor, Dr. Charlene Lane, who was one of my MSW professors. And she said, what do you think about teaching? Right. And I said, teaching. I said, professor, you know, I don't like public speaking. Why are you trying to put me in front of a <laughs> class of students? So now now I'm struggling with imposter syndrome. Like what me? The te like who would be foolish enough? right to hire me to do anything like because i'm silly at heart right um and i said no no thank you and she said well too late i put your name forward someone's gonna call you so now i felt this obligation to to my professor right that you know clearly she sees something in me that i don't see in myself um so if somebody does call me for this job i'm gonna i'm gonna follow through and see what happens um, and I wound up in, in the classroom and it was teaching a class on diversity and oppression and, and clinical social work from a global, utilizing a global perspective. And not only did I enjoy teaching and being a part of students process, but, you know, that's when I started to hear comments from students about representation, right? on how it was important for them to see me as a black man in front of them in the classroom um, because in their professional circles, they, they're not seeing that, right? But but their clients look like that. So, so now this idea of representation, so now I felt almost an obligation to, to the larger community to stay in the classroom and to sharpen my skills so I can be a better educator. And at some point I said, you know what? I think I want to work in academia full-time so mm -hmm. a position in field education opened up at the Silverman School of Social Work at Hunter College and I applied and that that was my kind of foray into full-time institutional work um and at that point I said you know what I I don't think I want to leave you know because to be effective as a as a clinician requires a certain set of skills in training um but the issues that plague some of our clients are, are not uh, superficial, right? Um, some of, you know, we have to deal with the policy violence, you know, that allows individuals to, to languish, allows people to be in pain, that does not, that uh, pr puts up barriers so that they don't access the resources and the services that they need. Um, so being in the, in academia and being in the classroom and being in field education, connecting these students to these experiential learning opportunities was, was a, a great marriage between all of the things that I knew kind of were not only impactful, but you know, areas of social work that kind of needed that support, who needed people who were serious about change. And, you know, I've been in academia now for 
this year will be 10 years full time in, in the classroom for, for 13. Are you deliberately avoiding the second question? No. <laughs> it's like to be a black. <laughs> I'm a man of a certain age, so you're going to have to remind me. Okay, what is it? Oh, is really? It? So are we going to talk about age? Yes. So or is that just a direct kick? Are um, the older brother here? Yes. <laughs> so I got it. What What is it to, to be a black? I was like, you know, when you think of your journey in academia, what has it been like uh, to be a black man mm -hmm. in academia? You know, one of the first things I had to learn was the, the same issues that we see in the general population are also present in social work um, and, and not just in community-based organizations, right? But also academia, the, the place that you would think is a, a sacred space for teaching and imparting knowledge to the next generation of change agents you know, can be the most racialized, you know. Um, so that's one thing I had to learn was that not everybody who calls themselves a social worker or an educator or a professor, you know, is actually in this for the same reasons that I am, who really has the best interests of the world, you know, uh, at heart. Um, and, and trying to find ways to work across some of those divides, um, you know, it's been challenging. I've worked with some racist social workers and educators who had no problems minimizing who I was, you know, uh, both as a student and as a prof professional. Um, so it's been challenging because I see, I have to be mindful because I don't carry some of the same privileges some of my peers. I have to be mindful of things like stereotype threat. So, you know, I had a peer call me scary and intimidating one day and I was thinking, no, that's a lie, right? Because I know, do the stereotype threat. There's a few things that I just never, ever do in professional spaces. Like you, you never hear me raise my voice, right? Um, and and that's a, a running joke in meetings because people say, Warren, you speak so softly. I need you to speak up. I, you know, I need you to speak up. You know, because I'm always mindful on how me as a black man, if I raise my voice, how other people are going to receive that or experience that. Um, so I, I, I try to avoid things that are gonna affirm stereotypes for people. Um, so if you walk in my office, there are certain types of music you will not hear if I'm playing music. That doesn't mean I don't listen to it. That just means, you know, I'm trying to control the narrative in that small way. Um, so not only is the work challenging, you know, in and of itself, you know, but it's also challenging managing other people's expectations, um, trying to limit the biases or um, uh, identifying the microaggressions as they occur, when they occur, you know, trying to teach people at the same time who may be guilty of implicit bias, but not know better. Um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because this element of privilege being being a black man and people think I'm a lot younger than I am, you know, so in some people's eyes, I'm a young or youngish black man. Um, so there's no way I can have, you know, I can know what I know or have the experiences to contribute to this space. Um, so it's been extremely challenging, you know, as a black man. And I absolutely think based on some of my colleagues who are not black men, um, it would probably be a different and easier experience if I shared another type of identity. 
you know, in just a few days, uh, I will have the privilege of being in the same room with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. I, I can't even imagine what that will feel like. But one of the things that I would like to ask her about uh, is her experience, you know, that whole story with UNC, mm -hmm. how it felt for her. And especially thinking that she was a product of that university. She was good enough to get a degree there, but she wasn't good enough to come and be dean there. She was gonna be the first person to be on that endowed chair that the board of trustees said you cannot give tenure to because of her skin color, mm -hmm. as accomplished as she was. Mm -hmm. So I will be asking her about that in a few days when uh, I see her. And yes, the 1619 project, uh, you know, when I see her. And I can tell you that what you just said um, resonates with a lot of people of color in academia. Uh, and But I think that even in the corporate world, right, like how we have to think multiple times before we say what we are about to say. We can't just block things out because, you know, we have to be protective of our own image because we don't just represent us. For some reason, we represent our race, <laughs> you know? And so it's like you have to think twice before you speak on subjects that people think is, yeah, hot. Um, and so very often we let our work speak for us. And uh, I recall one time being in a space where, and this was at my old university, where someone said, um, and she was associate dean in you know the university who said, for me, the most painful thing is meetings that I don't get invited to. And instead, they would invite my subordinates in her own department and in that, my old university. And so just hearing her, she, uh, of course, is a retired now. But those are, so when you said uh, it is exhausting, <laughs> you know, I don't think there's a better characterization, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's a lot. And I can absolutely resonate, you know, with, you know, with your your colleague, your retired colleagues, you know, um, experiences, right? Because, you know, I've had some of those experiences, not at my current institution, you know, but elsewhere. Um, and, you know, you, you have to, you know, that that feeds that imposter syndrome. It feeds some of the, the self-doubt, you know, and... Um, <clears throat> You know, if we're not careful, you know, because also in, you know, a lot of black communities, we're just now starting to understand the importance of, let's say, engaging in our own counseling and therapeutic process. So you're going through, you're on the receiving end of all of these things and in the, the clinical spaces, right, the clinical milieu still doesn't consider racism, you know, and the effects of racism and all, you know, as um, almost like a diagnosable issue, right? So, 
you know, you know what it what it looks like is depression, what it looks like is anxiety, what it looks like is all these other things. But at the core of it is these very racialized experiences and how we're being treated. So so how do we get people to understand that that these experiences are damaging? These experiences are 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 pervasive. They're 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 hurtful. They are extremely impactful. Um, and on an intergenerational intergenerational level, right? So Dr. Joy DeGroy in her post-traumatic slave syndrome, like she lays out what this looks like generation to generation. Um, so it, it is extremely complicated and uh, in what we know is space, academia, which I used to think was a, a bastion of, of free intellectual thought, um, you know, where you can engage in this high level critical thinking with like-minded individuals. I just imagine a, a group of philosophers sitting around a table pontificating, right? Um, and what I'm finding is it, it may be that for some people, but for especially women of color, Academia is not a safe space. You know, in the last six months, we've seen uh, we've seen administrators commit suicide at the hands mm -hmm. of being bullied by college presidents. We've seen uh, Dr. Gay resign. You know, on the receiving end of death threats just for showing up to do the job that she was actually hired to do. And there are countless other examples on how these spaces are just not safe. They're not cultivating safety. Um, and, you know, at some point when we think about what do we, what do, we do about that, you know, you know, it's not just in the proponents of ADEI will say, oh, you know, we have to fix our hiring practices. No, it's not just hiring. It's retention as well. You know, I can hire a diverse candidate, but if I don't support them while they're here and they leave, you know, I'm just going to sit back and go, well, we, we, hired, we hired someone of color. You know, it's not our fault they left. You know, so there's there's a lot to this. So, you know, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, her experience, you know, is unfortunate, you know, but thankfully, you know, those, those kind of experiences get publicized, you know, so that we can actually talk about it. So we can understand that this is a thing that real people are, are experiencing. And our road to academia, our road to the ivory tower, you know, is a lot harder than most. So when we get there to then be marginalized and minimized um, is, is a tragedy. It is a tragedy indeed. And it's interesting that you went beyond social work, uh, which reminded me to say that uh, that associate dean that I was talking about who made that comment at my old university was not in social work. And, um, you know, so it which really just goes to show how pervasive you know that experience is and um, I know that you did ask a question a few months ago maybe about two months, two months ago when you said uh, was the whole thing really about uh, Dr. Gay Claudine Gay and um, we can have that discussion but what I want to actually bring that to is the fact that some of your writings that I have read include the experiences of people of color uh, with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. And so as we have this discussion about people of color in high places, it's almost as if they are not treated much better than the, other, the people of color who have to deal with law enforcement and a criminal justice system. So how do you compare those experiences? 
how do I compare the experiences of being uh, a black in law enforcement and black in academia? Correct. Oh, um, there's definitely a parallel, you know, where and you know in in either space there's a ceiling, you know, and and I come from a law enforcement family, you know, uh, my siblings have been uh, police officers, state correction officers, uh, city corrections, worked in the courts. Uh, my stepfather was uh, deputy warden, you know, at a New York facility. You know, I, I come from this space and, and I've also seen how policy and, and how race and racism um, plays a part in, in the, the experiences of law enforcement and Blacks in law enforcement very specifically. Um, you know, there, there's what you're trained to do, right? There, there's your patrol manual, which kind of outlines your, the policies and the rules, right? And then at some point, they're going to tell you to close the book, right? And they're going to verbally say, this is how we do things, right? Um, so there, there, there is a parallel that, you know, depending on who you are, you, you may not reach the heights that you are capable of, that you should reach, that you're qualified for, just because of your identity, just because of your race, because of your gender, um, and the intersectionality of, of all of that. Um, so it's really no different, you know. Um, you know, you at, I would say for law enforcement, you know, chances are, you know, you're, you're still socialized to see the people you're interacting with, the communities, the, um, the, the potential perpetrators, you know, you're, you're programmed, you're socialized to, to create an image in your head on what those people look like in any given community, right? And they're probably going to be the same young black men that I was trying to help in our juvenile drug court program. Um, so there's a parallel between that and the ways in which young black men are treated in in academia as students. You know, I came from an organization, well, an institution where there was an, an academic review committee, which met to discuss issues of uh, student conduct, you know, if it violated you know, kind of um, like the policies around uh, student professionalism, or if there was a, a danger for that student to actually finish the academic studies. And the people coming before the committee, the students were disproportionately black men. Um, so, and they would, you know, comments would come out in those spaces like, he was referred because the instructor didn't feel safe around him. Well, what does that mean? Behaviorally, what, what, what did he do? Did he jump up on a table and yell and scream? Did he try to rip his shirt off like Hulk Hogan? Was he throwing furniture around? What, what did he do? No, uh, you know, it, it, it just the way he made me feel. So what I'm hearing is he didn't actually do anything. There are no behavioral indicators to, to, to lean on to say, this is why I felt afraid. So when you start to strip all of these things, the only thing that appeared to be left was race. Um, and, you know, much the same way when we think about law enforcement, we think about things like the Rockefeller drug law, which disproportionately affected you know, let's say black cocaine users, you know, instead of powder cocaine users. Well, looking at the demographics, who is likely to use either one of those substances? 
when you strip everything down, it looks like race. Um, <clears throat> so there's a parallel, you know, there is a parallel. And, and that's what actually wanted me to do more in the field to, to be more productive, to be productive in different ways. Every time someone said, hey, I'm thinking about writing this paper, you know, are, are you interested? Yes, you know, because I wanna contribute to change in any way I can. In, in some ways, making those connections um, that, you know, in all of these different spaces, the constant is race. So if we aren't paying attention to it, it doesn't matter what, what sector, what sphere we work in, you know, we're, we're potentially denying people's kind of their their individually their individuality their 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 personhood you know um right. we, we can't stick a band-aid on you know like we can't fix the thing if we don't name it we cannot fix the things without naming <laughs> you know and even in clinical practice we try to encourage our clients to name the experience and uh, and so we who we must always learn to name things and also be bold enough to do that so that we can fix them. I know you do have a hard stop, but I also know that we can talk till tomorrow and still be talking. Uh, but I, you know, just listening to you and uh, I know that one of the people watching us is a social worker in Texas uh, who wrote, uh, this is amazing. Uh, yes, we do a lot. And we are always satisfied by helping people. Uh, some people will say, maybe we shouldn't just be satisfied anymore, especially since um, I am speaking with the president-elect of the National Association of Social Workers of the NASW at the New York State chapter. And yesterday I was telling another social worker that the person I will be interviewing today uh, is the president-elect of the NASW. And she said, please ask him what he can do about getting us paid better. We, 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 should be sat we are satisfied, according to the social worker in Texas, we are satisfied by what we do. Then there's the other social worker who is saying, please ask him what he can do to get us paid better. <laughs> well, so interestingly, to, to that point, that's one of the actual legislative priorities you know, that, that we've been advocating for um, is, you know, higher pay for, for social workers and really elevating the, the profession, you know, to get more social workers in the schools, um, you know, to eliminate the barriers to getting, so, to getting social workers through the schools and into the communities that actually need them. There were already legislative priorities, you know, uh, you know across the country to, to really do that. So, you know, um, pay equity, you know, that that's a real thing, you know, and everyone is, you know, we're, we're forcing legislators to actually look at it um, and speak to it, um, so. So, uh, yeah, all right, I will, be, anyway, uh, she's going to see this if she's not seeing it already. <laughs> so I will let her know that uh, something you're working on. What do you see as the current and future trends in social work education in light of our country's political trends, you know? look at the political trends and you know where is social work uh, currently and in the future what do you see so when, when i think current trends right you know in in 2022 cswe updated the the epos education yes. policy and accreditation standards um so so that you know it's a lot more directive speaking about anti-racism diversity equity and inclusion its importance and its effect on you know some of the communities that we serve 
Um, so as a trend, I feel like that mirrors exactly what we're seeing on a national stage, this attention and focus on, on race and identity and other elements of identity and how it's been marginalized and how people do not feel safe, how people are not protected um, across the country. So I think what we're seeing in the field really is going to mirror what we're seeing in general society. I think we are, you know, the moment we start to see something going on, we're rallying to create ways to fix it, create ways to change it. Um, and in some ways it works, in some ways it doesn't. You mentioned there's, there's a viewer here from Texas. I know in Texas, you can't say things like diversity. You can't mention words like equity or anti-racism, especially in schools of social work, right? Um, your, your funding will be threatened in Texas and other states. So that that is a big deal. But so when we're thinking about trends, you know, we're looking at social justice, we're looking at human rights. Um, you know, I, I see another trend kind of moving from this very top-down authoritative approach to, to academic life, to academia. Uh, I think we're, what we're starting to see is uh, students feeling more empowered. You know, there are student movements, students have been rallying, students have been protesting. I think um, the ways in which we used to see academia where here the professor is speaking down to and teaching students, you know, I think the the playing field is being leveled, you know, um, so that, you know, we are partners in this process. You know, we're partners in your educational process. Um, so I, I think that's also, you know, another trend in, in just people fighting to be recognized, you know, people fighting for their identity to, to be recognized because they matter. I think we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing that globally, you know, and so that, that has to be a part of, of social work because that's a part of human rights. You know, I am an African man and and for us as Africans, and I'm sure you can relate uh, because <laughs> uh, we, you know, the, the clock is really just uh, an equipment, you know, that you can use to decorate your space. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to follow the time, right? <laughs> but I'm trying to make sure that, you know, that I follow the time and, uh, allow you to to leave because of, but only if you promise that you'll be back wait how do, how do you do it uh <laughs> trying to do the scouts honor thing I'm, scouts yes. honor. Yeah, on, on my honor yes. <laughs> so, and you are indeed an honorable man and uh i cannot tell you how grateful i am that you took one hour out of your hectic time you know to join us uh, and uh, have this conversation with me and with so many. Uh, someone in Nigeria wrote that this is a great conversation. Uh, and I know the next thing is they'll be asking me, when is he coming to speak in Nigeria? You know, but uh, <laughs> well, you have already promised, so we are going. Yes, yes, I did, I did. So <laughs> yeah. let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about when. <laughs> yes, that is correct. So thank you very much. Um, I, I can't, you. you know, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, have a really great uh, rest of the week. It's still early in the week. And uh, continue to, I love re reading your writings. And uh, I love when academia sends me an email 
uh, talking about <laughs> talking about Warren's uh, new publication, it makes me very happy, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I thank you. Please continue to do that. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I will, of course, absolutely come back. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversations, and I hope your your viewers did as well. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night.